You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast. Let's talk about. Okay, there we go. How are you doing, people? Welcome. Episode 60 of the Sports Therapy Association podcast. Fashion will be late as always. 803. It's never going to change. Sorry. Um, how are you doing? Um, I'm going to say, first of all, that I'm very tired this evening. Fortunately, I've got a guest who I couldn't have a more bubbly guest. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that between the two of us, we'll get like it's the norm and it'll be fine. Um, so um, it's just this heat is lovely. And I've been running every day. Those of you who've been following me on social media now, I'm doing this run a day challenge thing, which is great. Um, but it's just running in this heat. And I've been warning people about running in the heat. And I'm finally feeling it myself now. I'm forgetting words. Plus, of course, I'm getting older. So between the two of them. But anyway, thanks for joining us. If you listen to the podcast, and that's fantastic. We appreciate it. Obviously, these are recorded live. Um, and you can join us either by going to the Sports Therapy Association Facebook page, or if you prefer, you can join us by going to uh, our YouTube channel. We stream live on that as well. And either way of joining us, um, you'll be able to comment, ask the guest questions. And when you do comment, you can bring questions up uh, on the screen. For example, Catherine is now in the room here and I can bring Catherine up. And it says, Catherine Reimer said, hi, everyone. Hi, Catherine. How are you doing? Thanks for joining us. Um, so, yeah, if you do listen to this on the podcast and you fancy joining us, you haven't got to be an STA member. Um, you haven't even got to be a sports therapist. Just as long as you're a soft tissue therapist um, with um, the desire to improve your knowledge and network with others, then you're welcome. Come through the door and um, you'll have a good time. And also give you a chance to see what we kind of do and how we roll with the STA. I um, mean, in case you are a therapist who wants to join, um, probably one of the best PA organizations in the world. Um, it's up to you. No pressure. Right. So uh, before we go into today's episode, um, a huge thanks to Dr. Deepak Ravindran from last week. Some fantastic um, emails and people just telling me, I've just bought the book. I've just bought the book. By the way, I'm not getting shares on any. I'm not involved in it. I wish I was. I wish I got five pence every time someone told me they bought the book. But um, it is worth buying. And like I say, it's the price of three cups of coffee, which I also haven't drunk now for the whole of July. No coffee. Coffee free peppermint tea that's all i'm doing um but yeah for the price of three lattes you can get what i think is probably one of the best um for its price pound for pound one of the best uh, bits of information that i've read this year to tell you the truth uh, mainly because of the price i don't like spending too much and it's well worth it so if you have got 11 pounds 20 or something and you fancy investing in something then do yourself and your patients a favor and download um, either on Kindle or get the paperback, uh, The Pain-Free Mindset by Dr. Deepak Ravindran, who coincidentally um, has a relationship with our guest tonight. There's a nice segue I didn't realize from this when when Liz uh, Bailey, today's guest, was working in that area. So I'll be asking her about that. Um, I'm not surprised. All these great minds work together. Don't forget also that uh, now... Um, another way of um, listening to the podcast is going straight to the Sports Therapy Association page, web page. Um, I'm uploading them all to there now so you can stay on that page, read the little show notes um, and you can listen to it there um, if you want to watch the video. So that's another option for you. Just go to um, the yeah, Sports Therapy Association UK and it's all up there as with all the episodes I'm slowly uploading as well. There we go. Right then. So tonight's guest, by popular demand, we're starting to bring part of the uh, people who have already been on the show back and very, very close to the top. I can't say at the top because it would just 
make people she was at the top i can't find an excuse now she was at the top um we saw liz uh back in january which is really interesting because it was in the heart of lockdown so liz uh, gave us a fantastic episode on online consultations um and that's all changed now obviously well not completely but we're in the new norm um and liz is back and is going to be talking to us um uh about working now that she's managed to get back to work with pro dancers not just west end but obviously dancers of that caliber so really looking forward to that um as i say when you're joining us people are joining in the room then feel free to ask questions um and uh, yeah if you see me rappling on i will keep an eye on the questions i've told Liz she can keep an eye on the questions too um so yeah do it's this is all for you this show so if you've got an interesting question for liz then do bring it up um right that said and done i think i will stop talking and bring up the wonderful liz bailey with a y Hey, Liz Bailey with a Y, how are you? <laughs> I'm glad that you're finally remembering how to spell my name, Matt. Everyone gets it wrong, it's fine. It's fine. I know, I put out the advert and it was obviously the biggest thing on my mind and everywhere I did it and I got the picture right and everywhere. And then I think in one bit of text somewhere on Facebook, I spelt it as in Bill Haley, one of my heroes. And yeah, yeah That's I'm okay. sorry about that. Don't worry. And I, was, and I was almost over it and I was watching one of your other podcasts. Um, I think it was Chewing It Over with Jack. And at the end of that, uh, Jack said, how can how can people find you? And he went, oh, just very easy. Liz Bailey with a Y. And I thought, oh, my God, <laughs> she can see me through the screen. This is terrible. Um, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, good to see you. How are you? I'm all right. I'm, I'm really hot. I can see in the comments everyone's like, I'm sweating. I'm dying. I'm, me too. If it makes you feel any better. I'm so I'm, I've got a fan on me. I, felt, I thought I'd look like Beyonce with my fan, but it's, it's not throwing my hair around. <laughs> uh, I'm okay. Thanks for joining me, everyone. Yeah, it's yeah. It's hot evening. It is, um, which is why, yeah, if you have joined us live, then, yeah, kudos to you. Thank you very much. I'm sure you'd much prefer to be sitting in front of a fan eating ice cream. Um, so, yeah, thanks, Liz. Thanks so much. Um, it's, it's interesting that it's so good that last time we spoke to you, it was in the lockdown. Um, and, um, obviously as a physio, you were still able to see people, but you were, you were, you had a different role in you back then as well. Have you, have things changed? Since yeah. Then? Yeah. Things have changed a lot for me since January. So I, when I spoke to you in January, um, oh gosh, I had just left my job, even though physios were allowed to work. Um, I was worried because of my personal situation about, about getting COVID and I'd quit my job. I was an FCP and I was working in, um, uh, Berkshire, which is underneath, um, Deepak Ravindran so that's how I know of him so he was my clinical lead when I was an FCP because uh, I used to work in Ascot um, but I had just quit that job and I sort of was unemployed sort of for about five months five months four months um, doing online bits and pieces and bits and pieces with dancers but not a lot and then I started my job in June when all the theatres started opening again so now I'm happy to say I'm back in the theatres even though as a lot of you will know a lot of the shows have had to close in the last couple of weeks because of COVID. So we're, we're a long way from being out of it, but at least I'm working and um, theatres are open so long as COVID doesn't get in the way of that. Like famously Cinderella, which is Andrew Lloyd Webber's new show, which I, I'm a physio on, which is fantastic. Um, incidentally, I work underneath a company called West End Osteopathy with a guy called Fabi, who's like West End royalty. So I work under their their company on all the different shows that I work on. But I was working on Cinderella. I saw the show last week, which is part of my job, which I boast about on Twitter being the best part of the job. Um, and then it was meant to be their opening night last night and they've had to close for 10 days because they had one person test positive. And even though everyone else has tested negative, the government guidelines mean that they can't 
open for 10 days. So uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber has been very vocal about how devastating it is for the theatre industry. Of course, it is. It's not the only show either. There's been others. Hairspray had to close. There's another one that I'm working on that's currently in re- reduced rehearsals. Um, what else? Hamilton had to sort of change the way they were rehearsing because of the COVID test. So it's, it's a big deal. So even though I am back in theatre, we're a long way from being back to normal. But, you know, I was sitting in a theatre on Thursday watching a show. So we're, we're nearly there. And we can hear, I mean, people listening to the podcast, obviously you can't see Liz on the screen, but I guarantee that physically she's as as passionate as she sounds. Um, She is so excited. Your face lights up when you're talking about (laughs) theatre. And I could see how devastated you were. I love the way that so many people were were kind of as if something had died, someone had died, as if your little dog had died or something. I'm so sorry, Liz. That must be terrible, Liz. People are so so empathic, aren't they? Because I, I tweeted, oh, you know, Cinderella's had to close and I was only on Thursday and people, oh my God, Liz, are you okay? I'm like, it's okay, yeah, yeah, I'll survive. Yeah. It's okay. <laughs> it's like <laughs> 10 days. I know. It, yeah, well, actually, the, the the thing that Android Weber put out was quite unclear. I yeah, had to find out myself from my contacts in the show whether or not it was closed for good because I was like, oh my God, is it closed for good? Um, but it hasn't. It's going to open again. Thank God. Can you imagine they'd only done a couple of weeks of previews, they're called, so they hadn't officially opened. So I saw what was a preview. Um, and the show is incredible, by the way. It's really funny. So if anyone likes musical theatre, Cinderella is a really good one. So going to see when it opens again. Yeah. I think I saw it once with Christopher Biggins, I think Dan Worthing Pierce. Is that the same production? No, it's not the same at all. That's not the same at all. That's not. Oh, it's a different that's, production. That's definitely okay. different. Yeah. yeah. No, it's kind of, a, it's a twist on the story. And yeah. Oh, fantastic. It's good. Right. So, um, Oh, thanks, Glenn. Glenn has joined us. Glenn Murphy says, um, just j- watching under a tree with an ice cold drink. Very nice. Lucky and then, you. Very nice. <laughs> and then Gary, founder of um, Sports Area Associations in the house as well. Evening all, melting here. Just had a great thunderstorm. Is that a metaphor, a euphemism or something, Gary? Or do you actually mean it? <laughs> I'm not quite sure what that means. I just hope you're well and happy and I've got a load off your chest. Anyway, there we go. And Stephen Waterson's in the house. Um, hey, Stephen, how are you doing? Greetings all. Been coaching. Sorry for late arrival. You're fine. It's very laid back here. You've um, not Steve, missed yeah, anything yet. <laughs> so um, I'm interested as well, because obviously I think you'd agree since, well, the last, in terms of speaking and being on podcasts, you did therapy live, which was fantastic. And you had how many people, did you know how many people were watching at one point? Did you have a little click? For in me, the top? Uh, yeah. I, I don't know. It was, it was quite a big number. It was much more than I thought it was going to be. Mm. Well, I can't remember what it was. Because it was different, like they gave you lots of different data. But um, it, I mean, it wasn't up there with the really big talks, but I wouldn't expect everyone to want to hear about dance. But comparatively, I didn't think I'd get that many people. And we got loads and I, I got really good ratings, which was. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> so it was good. So I think whoever did listen to it got a lot out of it, I think. Um, so that's really good. Yeah. I think one I of the things that. that came out of it and the feedback I saw on social media was, although you think that working with dancers is a little niche group, I don't know whether it's the way you tell it or whether it's just a fact and it needs someone to tell it, but you can get so much out of listening how people work with dancers and then apply it to any athlete. And there's a lot yeah. of crossovers, isn't there? Yeah. Um, which we'll look at athletes. tonight. Yeah, yeah still, exactly. They, they are. I mean, when I was professional dancer, I didn't define myself as an athlete at all, but I should have. And that's partly what we'll talk about. I think um, it's the way that it's seen culturally, 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 uh, <laughs> culturally, dancers definitely identify as artists first. 
but mm. they are performing they're, um, they're performing athletes is what we like to call them um, so it's really important that the things that have been done in sports for a long time are now brought over to dance and they're starting to be I think so that's exciting that's really interesting. We're going to have to come back to that because I just maybe have to add a question here to my little crib sheet now. Yeah. Um, we'll come back to that. Before we do, because I think one of the lovely things about you is that the way you do explain things makes you very accessible for both therapists and dancers themselves, which I think is ideal in this world because it should be. We should be speaking a more common language. I don't know whether you do it on purpose or whether it was it's something you've practiced, but I'm I'm hoping that especially now that your name's more out there, dancers will tune in and listen to this podcast thinking, oh, wow, I've heard of Liz Bailey. Oh, she so let's have a little intro to any dancers watching this. Um, why why should they be listening to you? Give us a little bit about your background because it is very impressive. Uh, dance, right. Okay, dance, as a dancer. So, yeah. I've, I, so I danced since I was three years old. It's always been what I've done. Um, it was always like my sort of special talent, I guess. It's what I did um, my whole life. So uh, I, yeah, so I, Dance from the age of, so I've got to work out a way of telling this faster. Um, so I tried to dance from the age of three. I did, I trained mainly in ballet when I started, but that's a classical dance form. So it's a really good grounding for everything. Um, when I went professional, so I, I decided not to go to stage school. Um, I actually ended up going to university and did my first degree in psychology because I've always been, I've always been quite academic and like doing that. And I just thought it was the sensible thing to do. I'm really terribly sensible most of the time. Um, so once I'd done my degree, I kept dancing while I was at university as well at a really high level. Um, so I was doing like advanced ballet classes and I was nipping to London and doing professional classes and things. So I started dancing professionally when I was 21 um, and danced for like 15 years as a professional dancer. Um, I never had an agent. So I did the kind of jobs um lots of stuff abroad I ended up specializing in Latin and ballroom um in 2008 trying to think sort of how long ago that was now 2008 was when I was kind of at the height of my professional Latin and ballroom stuff with a a full-time dance partner and we were talking to Strictly about being one of the professional couples that's the kind of level we were at kind of just helps people understand the kind of thing we were doing um we also specialized in Argentine tango um uh I did lots of uh cabaret work so I worked at the Moulin Rouge uh, in Paris for a year I think most people know. I always think people know that but then mm, it comes I up in conversation well they, you think that but it comes up in conversations and people are like oh I didn't know you worked there I'm like I talk about it non-stop how could you <laughs> <laughs> um but that was a that was a very cool contract it was hard so most professional shows are about eight shows a week in Paris it's 12 shows a week so you do two shows every night uh with one day off obviously um it's really physical because there's a can-can dance in it the costumes are huge uh the can-can dance is really hard gave me uh proximal hamstring tendinopathy in sure yeah. both legs which again i've talked about um i had back injuries i had um uh yeah various bits and pieces on that show that was quite a hard one but it's also what got me interested in being a physio because once i started to get injured i sort of found it really interesting um yeah and then i halfway through my dance career i kind of said well, i'm gonna have to do something eventually i ended up doing sports therapy as you know mm-hmm. so i was a sports therapist for a good seven or eight years then I wanted to take it further. So I did a, a master's degree in, um, uh, <laughs> I did a master's degree in physio at King's. <laughs> Gary. Sorry, people listening to podcasts um, should realise that yeah, <laughs> Gary Benson was one of the tutors on your and mine when we did sports therapy way, way, way back in the day. 
So yeah, yeah. Gary's just he's still banging on about that, Liz. I yes. think he might be talking about Moulin Rouge. Like, oh, is he about sure. the can can? Oh, right. um, yeah. So then I so then, I've, then I've been a physio for about five or six years now. But altogether, as a sports therapist and a physio, I've been working clinically with dancers for about twelve years. I've calculated it as. So it's quite a long time, actually, isn't it? Mm. Um, and I, I danced professionally and did sports therapy at the same time at, at the end of my dancing career. So um, and that was when I worked in all the big theatres in London as a sports therapist. I, and I, I'm happy to say I'm now back in the big theatres in London, but as a physio, which was my ultimate goal, because mm-hmm. I just wanted to have a little bit more knowledge, a slightly higher qualification and be able to be a bit more autonomous, which mm. I definitely am. And it's um, it's great. So I'm really sort of where I wanted to be. Fantastic. Great summer. You did well, considering you started at the age of three. That is a good content (laughs) (laughs) those years. Fantastic. Um, Just saying a hi to, we've we've got royalty here today. We've got David Poulter's in the house. Hi, David. Must have stopped cycling for a second, or is he kind of cunningly watching? He's likely on a bike, isn't he? Yeah, exactly. I suspect he's on a bike. Thanks for watching, David. Good to see you, David. I appreciate it. So, yeah, so fantastic. Yeah, I just think that's important because I, I have the impression that when you try and get in to see dancers that maybe they prefer to see someone who's been a dancer and knows it they might I mean I know it's like with martial artists because I worked with martial artists for a while and because they knew that I'd done a bit of martial arts and had a couple of fights it was kind of an opening door but I know other therapists where if you haven't done it then they're not going to see you they're just they don't think you don't know what it's like is that true with dancers is it fair to say or is it a generalization yeah, probably. With any kind of specialist sport, it's always been like, like when I was injured, if I could see someone that had a background in dance or, or worked with dancers, it was a massive sell for me. I would always think, oh, I'll definitely go and see them. It's just because you can't, there's a lot of language in dance and terminology that you can share. You can say like with the dancers that I work with now, someone got injured a couple of weeks ago and they were doing a particular move. And as soon as they described it, I knew exactly what they meant. I even described it back to them. They're like, yeah, 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 that's it. It's just it. It means that you can talk on the same level. You've, I've got an understanding. Of, I know exactly how it feels to be in rehearsals for three weeks, to get injured, to have the threat of your career be taken away. Um, it's And like you said about runners, it's definitely part of your identity. So if you both identify as a dancer first, and I always will, even though I'm a physio now, um, it just gives you common ground. It, it definitely helps the therapeutic relationship. It's really important. But then you've got people like... Um, I sort of say my partner in crime. So Bill Taylor, who is the mm. consultant physio for the Scottish Ballet, when he started with dancers, he hadn't danced. And he says himself, he bought a book and he learned the terminology and he went and watched shows and he he kind of engrossed himself in the world so that he could work with dancers. And now he knows everything kind of that I do. I suppose he doesn't have the experience I do as a physical dancer being injured and that stuff, but he's has a fantastic rapport with dancers, still having never been one, but he's worked with them for a long time. So I know the dancers adore him, you know, mm. so, yeah. He's an adorable sort of chat. We had him on the show as well, isn't well, he? I can yeah. imagine him getting on with anyone. Yeah. It's okay. a Scottish accent, that's what it is. Something, something about that, yeah. Definitely a little <laughs> bit of a bromance, I think. He was great. Um, so, right, let's – there's so much we could talk to you, but I think to start off, let's take it down to real basics and maybe start off with a summary of the sort of injuries you see so that the therapists here and the dancers listening – be able to kind of think oh yeah i know about that or i've had that or so what are the sort of maybe top three or four common injuries, injuries. yeah yeah so so the the top traumatic injury is going to be a lateral ankle sprain almost almost certainly i think it is in most sports it definitely is in dance 
Um, but apart from that, on the side or something in the knee, like a meniscus or a MCL or an ACL, those kinds of injuries, traumatic injuries. Um, but put them to the side because traumatic injuries really aren't the biggest thing for dancers. The really big deal for dancers is overuse injuries. Um, and it all comes down to too much too soon, not enough rest, them not having the capacity really to do what they're being asked to do, um, all of that stuff. So with overuse injuries, we're definitely talking tendinopathies. If I think that my last my last month at work, I've seen probably tendinopathy of every tendon going. That includes upper limb and lower limb too, uh, because although I work with dance, people always think dancers get lower limb injuries, and of course they do. It's a huge part of it. But in musical theatre, they get a lot of upper limb injuries as well because they they do all kinds of different choreography. So they do floor work, they do partnering, which ballet dancers do as well. But um, the costumes cause them injuries. Uh, the very heavy costumes. They have to use props, which is often when you get lateral epicondylitis or mm-hmm. or medial epicondylitis. Um, lots of wrist stuff because of various postures they have to make. Um, so you really do see, and this is what I like about musical theatre, is that you see a real array of injuries. It's not just the lower limb, although the lower limb is still very prominent in the injuries that we see. So, I mean, like I say, tendinopathy-wise, we had Achilles tendinopathy, perineal tendinopathy. Um, uh, what were the other ones? Uh, posterior tibialis, patella tendinopathy, gluteal tendinopathy. They're the ones I can just think off the top of my head that I've seen in the last two weeks. Like, tendinopathies are wow. life for sure. Um and on top of that, so you've got your lateral ankle sprains, you've got, yeah, knee stuff. So with the younger dancers, particularly, you get lots of patella, femoral pain. Um, you get uh, fat pad impingement quite a lot with dancers, especially when they're hypermobile because the way that the knee hyperextends and it puts pressure on the fat pad um, or from trauma because often they'll be doing stuff kneeling. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've had, I've had a couple of traumatic uh, fat pad impingement or fat pad uh, irritation uh, things. Lots of hip stuff. So... Uh, label issues, um, uh, like snapping hip is a big one for dancers. So either internal or external. So you get snapping hip of the ITB or you get it inside with the iliopsoas tendon. Definitely get lots of that stuff. Uh, what else? Um, and, and, and all the back things or every back injury you can think of, low, and, uh, low back and neck is a big one for musical theatre. Really big. So you asked for the top three. I've just given I you like. Thank you. I can't I'm trying to think of something you haven't mentioned. No, yeah, I think it's pretty much. Like they literally <laughs> yeah. get every injury going, um, and it's because, particularly in musical theatre, it's because of the way they have to use their whole body and the, and the mm. costumes. Like I said, the, the footwear. Um, yeah, necks are a big one in musical theatre because of the headgear and the wigs that they have to wear. Some yeah, of the yeah. wigs in, like for example, in Cinderella, are huge. Um, so you have to. I work a lot with the performers about neck strength. Um, some of the other big shows that people would know about, I'm going to try and be non-specific when I talk about this stuff. Um, big, big costumes on the head and they have to do things like, like uh, they have to move their head back with these great big things. And of course, mm-hmm. the amount of strength it takes in the neck to be able to do that. And then when they're rehearsing, it's repetitive. So they don't just do it once. They're doing it 25 times, you know, and, and they haven't done it before. So you can see where the injuries come from. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. It, it's the, the rehearsals are the absolute worst part for dancers and because uh recently all the shows have opened up at the same time so all of these different shows went into rehearsal at the same time normally they wouldn't have done normally shows close shows open so the company i work with west end osteopathy of having to deal with every single show being in rehearsal and that's when you get the most injuries so it's been really busy really really busy um yeah so there you go like i say that's about 50 injuries for you but Shoulders. I mean, you get loads of shoulder stuff too. So shoulders, wrists, elbows, the whole lot. 
How long, say, say working back from, I'm just thinking in my mind of like a marathon or something and 16 weeks training for the marathon, what sort of time window do you have before the performances start where you're working with these athletes? Yeah, so you mean uh, how much rehearsal do they get? Well, when you first get to see them, I want to ask you in a little bit about screening, maybe. Yeah, okay, that's a, yeah, we can talk for ages about that. But before I do that, what sort of time period do you get where you meet them for the first time and you give a chance for them to say, look, oh yeah, I've got a bit of history, I'm a bit worried about that, can you take this up or something? What sort of time do you get? Well, basically, you meet them as the contract starts. So Mm. although you've got, say, four to six weeks of rehearsal, they Mm. will be meeting you and the next day they'll be in rehearsal. So you don't really have prep time. This is right. something that we're we're working on. So there's a particular show that I work on, which we are now, I say we, it's me and one other guy. We're mm. now full-time physios on this West End show. And that is kind of unprecedented. It's a really big deal because normally physios are brought in as a kind of reactive thing mm. for treatment. So uh, the, the performers do what they need to do. And if someone gets injured, physios come in the theatre, they patch them up, literally. You know, unless it's really bad, you send them off for referrals and things. But it's not a preventative thing at all. And it's a real cultural phenomenon. And it's something that's starting to change. And a good example is the fact that me and this guy that I work with are now full time paid physios all the time in the theatre when the show's on, which really hasn't happened before. So it's, it's exciting. I'm so excited because yeah. it puts me in the position where I can do preventative stuff now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, however, we've only just started. So had we been brought in before COVID, we could have been working with all these performers through the whole COVID thing to keep them fit. Like in some of the ballet companies, like Scottish Ballet, for example, they've always had full-time physios because ballet is ahead of the curve, much more than um, musical theatre. So their physio and uh, S&C team have been keeping all the dancers up to scratch. Pretty much, it's, it's not perfect from what I understand, but it's very good. It's certainly better than nothing. So we haven't had a chance to do that because we've just come in. But now that we're there, we've got the capacity to do that. So if I'm once, and this is the thing, once the show's open, we can start to really make a difference because while they're in rehearsals, they're so overloaded with the amount of work they're doing. You can't throw a load of S&C stuff at them because they just wouldn't tolerate it. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't be very popular. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And it, it's not worth it. They just, at this point, they've all come out of the COVID situation. They're, they're not really show fit, a lot of them. Um, and we're just trying to get them through rehearsals. But now, for the first time, like I say, we're in this capacity where we're full time. So we can really make a difference in that way. Um, yeah, and it starts with screening. So that was going to be your question, wasn't it? I think so. Because I imagine, I mean, and again, I know nothing about this. So excuse me if I come out with some ridiculous questions. But do you get to see with the years dealing with various productions, do you get to see the same kind of professionals working in different shows? You get to build up a relationship with them so you know what their weaknesses are and you can get their yeah. rapport? Or is it kind of a new cast, new people? Yeah, sometimes it's it's a really small world. So even if you don't work with the same people, you know everyone who knows everyone. Um, but yes, I've definitely worked with a few of the same people here and there. But mostly it's um, new people, I would say, sort of. Maybe it's a bit of it's a bit of both. Um, uh, yeah, but what we what we do for the so screening is something that's sort of been around in dance for a little bit, mm. but it used to be very different from what it's becoming now. And I say that from my point of view in the dance physios that I work with, and I'd like to think, I'm crossing my fingers, that we're quite progressive um, in the in what we're doing. So we're kind of going down, like I say, that sort of sports avenue. We're trying to yeah. really be sciencey about it. <laughs> very, very uh, technical word, sciencey, but we're trying to be evidence-based, do things that really make a difference. So when I started doing screening with uh, students and various uh, colleges, which was probably 
well, I've been doing it 12 years, eight to 10 years ago. So it's quite a long time ago now. I did what I knew was right then. And what that basically was, was like, it's like an audition screen. So you're kind of looking at it from the point of view of the company, which is, is this dancer suitable to do the contract we're going to get them to do? So you're looking for problems and you're trying to work out, can they do it? So it's very much a kind of, you look at posture, you look at things like scoliosis, you look at things like hypermobility. That's a, that was a big one. I say it was, I don't do that anymore. And I'll tell you why in a minute. Um, you look at alignment, you look at muscle length, um, things like that. So you're, you're trying to work out if the dancer has the capacity to do what you want them to do. But they were very kind of what I would call old fashioned uh tests and things because really what does alignment well actually <laughs> alignment does tell you a certain amount in technique dance technique is quite predictive of, of future injuries but if you're looking at things like and again I'm contradicting myself I was going to say scoliosis if you have a massive scoliosis it might make a difference to their capacity but a little bit you can you see lots of scoliosis in dancers because they come from that population where there can be hypermobility and there can be connective tissue issues um but again, if it's just a small scoliosis, does it matter? I see loads of dancers with, with a little bit of scoliosis who dance beautifully and don't have any problems with it. But if, if they were going into, say, a big ballet company, they might be ruled out for that. You know, not always if it's more mild. But what we're coming to understand now is that what really matters is um, strength, conditioning and functional ability. So now when we look at screening, certainly this is what I did at the beginning of the contracts that we've just started. We're looking at things like um, uh, counter movement jump heights and single leg hop distances and um, uh, people's ability to do a star excursion balance test or their or their balance or um, what else? Uh, press up capacity or a seated medicine ball throw. So we're looking at upper upper limb strength and capacity, cardio capacity we measure as well, if possible, um, because it, things like cardio fitness cardiovascular fitness make a difference to injury risk because if you're performing a show and you start to get tired mm. you're more likely to get injured so and people always think dancers are fit but they're not they're not dance really is a skills-based thing it's not a fitness-based thing when, when dancers do dance classes it's to learn how to be a dancer it's not to improve your cardiovascular fitness most 50 percent of a dance class i read this somewhere 50 percent of a dance classes you standing around watching the others you know, so you might be you might be in a 90 minute dance class, but you're not dancing that whole time. And one thing you definitely do is the anaerobic bit. So you'll get up and do a two minute jump thing. But dancers tend to be sort of just fit enough to dance. They don't tend to excel with their fitness that they're dancing. And this is the kind of thing that we can make a difference with as physios and strength and conditioning coaches, because it, it's definitely an area where they're lacking and they don't know that. That's the key thing. Dancers think they're fit. I used to think I was fit. I, I was so un I was terrible. I was the laziest dancer in the world. I never did anything extra because it wasn't part of the culture I didn't think I needed to I just I assumed I was fit because I was a dancer and then whenever I had a break from a contract I'd sit on my bum and watch tv and like eat chocolate and think oh well I'll dance in three weeks it'll be fine and of course then I was if I did have any fitness from the show I just finished I'd lose it over that period and then when I went into rehearsals I'd really struggle for two to three weeks I like the the burn was real I remember having doms and um hardly being able to breathe <laughs> like because I just didn't cross train because I just didn't, I didn't know. 
Um, and it's amazing because it happened to me because we, we were interviewing the dancers. What we did before we started this set of rehearsals, because it was such a, and I hate the word, but unprecedented situation with COVID. What we did was give them a quick phone interview first just to see where they were mentally, physically, what they'd been up to. And I spoke to my boss about it and we were handing over a few different patients and he said, yeah, they're not very fit. They've all said they're doing their like their 10,000 steps a day. But, you know, 10,000 steps a day is like for the average office worker. It's not for an elite performer. And yet they thought they were doing the right thing. These dancers were proud of the fact that they'd done their 10,000 steps a day and a bit of stretching and they thought they were show ready. And when my boss told me that, I have to admit, I was a bit annoyed with them. And then I took a moment and thought, just think for a second, Liz, what you used to do as a dancer. Because I forget what I've learned. I forget how much knowledge I've got now. And I didn't do anything when I was dancing. Um, and of course, these dancers think when I say to them, what exercise have you been doing? They go, oh, yeah, I've been stretching. It's like, brilliant. You're already hypermobile. The stretching actually going to help you. But they haven't done cardio. They haven't done strength training. They haven't done balance training, no agility. So that's the message. And you can, I just get people always say you, you get so passionate about it. But I do because it would have made me such a better dancer. I wouldn't have got injured as much. I would have performed better. I would have jumped mm. higher. I wouldn't have been as tired when I was doing like a, a three and a half minute full on salsa routine with lifts and everything with my partner. By the end of it, my nostrils would flare. I was so tired. My, my, my respiratory, cardiorespiratory system was not in any shape to be doing that, but I put, I dread it. I didn't think to cross train outside. Like now it makes so much sense, but when I was dancing, I had absolutely no education at all. I just had my dance classes from when I was younger and no one that I worked with did it. The most we would ever do would be another dance class. But again, dancers dance. That's fine. What they don't do is cross train cardiorespiratory. They don't cross train strength. They don't cross train balance. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the stuff that now when I'm with the dancers that I'm with full, full time in the shows that I am, I tell them about it and they go, Oh, that's exciting. Like, and I'm, and I have hardly touched the surface. I'm just about to start this. So I, it's, it's a real experiment. And me and the guy that I'm working with have got lots of plans of what to do. So it might be good to come back and do another, another podcast and sort of tell you how, how we've got on. But we're going to, we're, mon- we're monitoring injury rates. So that at least um, we're hoping we can maybe write a paper on it or something. I don't I was know. I going to say, there's yeah. an opportunity here, isn't there? Is there much research into it? Or? No, not in musical theatre. So in, no. in ballet, there is. Ballet has always been ahead of the curve because there's more funding. They've always had bigger medical teams. But in musical theatre, there's, there's almost nothing at all. So we were like, God, we've got a real opportunity here to collect information, discuss, you know, actually what injuries do occur and then put preventative measures into place and then see if it makes a difference, you know, but it's going to, it's going to be a bit of time coming because like I said, we've got a load of dancers that right now are still dealing with COVID. Mm. Um, and we, we, we know them a little bit, but not that well. And I haven't even had a chance to do like a warm up with them yet. So we've mm. got a long way to go, but I've got a lot of plans. They all know about it. They're like, Oh God, this is on one again, <laughs> <laughs> but it's exciting. I, I sort of can't wait to see the difference that we could potentially make. So it all kind of fits together because to make any form of screening or profiling effective, you need to do it, well, earlier than four weeks, presumably before you go live on the first production, isn't it? You need more time than that because what's the point of uncovering something four weeks to go? Exactly. Well, not even four weeks to go with one day before rehearsal starts. 
Right, so yeah. That's it. So if someone said, oh, yeah, I had knee injury, it's still niggling. It's like, oh, well, tough. We're yeah, we start tomorrow. Yeah. So, mm. yeah, absolutely. We need to know it before, really. Or, or ideally, like ballet companies tend to, well, that's not, I was going to say they tend to hold on to people for longer, but they do musical theatre. Like, I'm just thinking a couple of the shows, some of those people in those shows have been in them for 10 years. Mm. So the dance captains, for example, have usually been on the show for a long time. They know the whole show back to front and they can do what's called um they can be swings so swings mm. know every part in the show so at any time they can go on for any position um and it's part of the whole how we manage injuries thing it's a huge part of the theater um so the people that are swings often know the shows well they do know the shows back to front uh, but they've often been in the shows for a long time so uh yeah there is an element of people staying in companies but um sorry i'm just reading questions starting to pick up now <laughs> Um, what was I going to say? So, so there's not like a show that's running and running and there's not like an off season training camp, like any other no. sport where this doesn't exist yet. No, there's okay. no off season. There's no off season shows run the whole time. And then, right. and then when, um, ballet companies again, are slightly different. They might have an off season because ballet companies tend to tour. Mm. So, uh, they'll go to Germany for say three months and then like, japan for six months or something but they might have like a month or two in between where they're not dancing mm. um but musical theater is non-stop what, what, what mm. the show is you know what i mean so yeah the dancers on most of the shows i'm working on have just started a year contract so they'll okay. definitely be on it for a year like i say a lot of them it's their 10th year or their seventh year or their fifth year um but there's no break they get holidays but they don't get off season time right. at all um, i mean apart from covid that was a big big chunk of off season <laughs> a big chunk of off season time and surely this is where linked with injury prev such a high injury prevalence is going to be related to that isn't it because there's not any yeah. preparation for it so yeah it's very similar to running where runners can go out 365 days a year and i used to say running is different than any other sport but i'm going to say running and dancing um are different than any other sport because it's not divided up it's you're continuously trying to perform every single day of the year and setting yourself yeah. you know. very yeah. interesting so in terms of the reality at the moment most of the stuff you're dealing with and this links in with a question from glenn here is reactive where really your goal they're a little bit like a physio at a football game is to try and do everything yeah. you can so they don't have to be pulled off or they can go on tomorrow night or something glenn here has asked a question which is kind of uh about the same sort of thing um do you just pull them out of the show when injured when the show's up and running and let the understudies do their stuff or do you just strap them up and let dr theater take over yeah <laughs> both both so it depends on the on the severity of the injury so um I remember when I first started working in theatre it was literally like the first show that I ever did as a sports therapist and they asked me to see someone for their neck this was years ago 12 years ago literally and I they just had neck spasm I say just I always do that with muscular injuries so whenever whenever it's something muscular I kind of go oh you know because muscles get better quickly and they tend to not be too complicated in general so I'm like oh it's just muscle because in my head I'm thinking oh at least it's not bone or tendon mm. or, or nerve um, but they had neck spasm which as we know can be incredibly uncomfortable and you certainly would struggle to to perform with it but I didn't know that them not going on was an option even though I had done the shows and knew about swings and things, I thought my job was to get them back on stage. So I did a load of trigger point therapy and manual stuff. And, and the person in question definitely got slightly better range of motion, but I suspect it would have been by the time they got on stage, they would have frozen up again. You, we know it's probably short term. Um, so I, I put them on, on stage and the company manager said to me later, why did you put them on? She could have come off. We had a swing. And I felt like such a fool. And my, in my head, it was because, because I thought that was my job. I thought I had to keep people on stage. 
okay, so that was a long time ago. Um, now I know that's absolutely not the case. And if someone basically, if someone can't do the job they need to do, they can't do the show. So if they've lost range of motion in their head, can they dance? No. I had uh, someone a few weeks ago. Uh, it was a, a guy had hurt his shoulder from carrying a massive piece of a massive prop, and um, he couldn't even uh, do shoulder flexion with resistance. And I thought, well, then he can't dance. It's it's very simple, you know. It's not actually a difficult decision because you're objectively assessing them. Can they do what they need to do? No. Then we need to get the swings involved. So for me, it's it's. I've sort of made complete peace with it. I'm I'm not a magician. I'm not there to patch them up when they're that badly injured that they're really struggling. The point is, is they've got systems in place that I don't need to do that on the whole. There's the odd time uh, when, so with certain shows, what well, with all shows, you've got swings, understudies and um, standbys, and they're all different different levels of cover. So like I said, the swings can do any part in the ensemble. That's the basic dance group. And then say you've got loads of people injured, they can also cut the ensemble. So you can actually take parts out of that and still have a show that's up and running, but it's what's called a cut show. So that's two different ways of, of sorting the show out, but it'll still go ahead. The audience won't know any difference, really. There's maybe one less person on stage, but the audience doesn't really know about that. Then you've got understudies and so standbys are the people that cover the top, top parts. So like the alphabet in Wicked, you know, or um, uh, Charlie, uh, uh, Willy Wonka and Charlie and Chocolate Factory. Those standbys are in the building, ready to go, if the if the top person can't do the show for some reason. And they're quite they're used quite often. Like even at the interval, quite often a, a, a top you know principal will say, "I can't go on for whatever reason," and then their standby goes on. So you've actually got people being paid that are in the building, just sitting there, waiting in case there's a problem. Because on those big shows, if you lost your alphabet, you need a spare alphabet. The show cannot go ahead. So it's really important to have standbys. Um, and then understudies are the same kind of thing, but with the other parts. So like the slightly uh, less important parts, but obviously parts that must go, you have to have to make the show run. So the parts that you don't necessarily need to make the show run are the ensemble parts. So you can always cut the ensemble and then everyone kind of gets bumped up. So everybody understudies or covers somebody. So does that make sense? So, um, yeah, yeah. so if, if you're in a situation where you've got a cut show and everyone's bumped up, but then there's another injury you start to get into dangerous ground because you start to actually get to the point where you could potentially not be able to do the show because you might lose a top person, if that makes sense. And I've had two situations in the whole 12 years I've worked where the top, top person was struggling and we had a massive meeting. I'm talking me, production managers, company managers, stage managers, the person in question where we've said, right, can we patch them up? Because if they don't go on, we now don't have someone to cover the other part because they're going to have to cover them and then everything else gets bumped up, if that makes sense. So mm -hmm. there's, there's, it doesn't happen often, but if you have enough injuries or sickness as well, you can get to those points where you kind of need to be able to make quite tricky decisions. Is this going to be a real problem if they go on stage and perform on it? You know, um, And we've always managed to kind of get around with it whether that's using over-the-counter medication, bit of reassurance, bit of modification of the part of the show. So in one particular case, I said, they can probably do the part, but we need to change this particular part in the show. And then they worked with a dance captain and they changed it so that they could still go ahead. But what they did was they changed the choreography to make it not as hard. So I don't know if that's all very kind of non-specific and I'm, I'm deliberately being non-specific because I need to be careful talking about people that are in the public eye, you know, um, but hopefully that makes sense no definitely and it's yeah. interesting because i i imagine there is less flexibility i I was comparing it more to like a football game or something where you basically one of your biggest obstacles is the manager or the coach who just wants to get that player back on there's not an option get them back on and that's kind of 
you're always kind of towing that line between doing what your manager says but it sounds like you've got a lot of strategies in place already and you haven't got that pressure on your shoulders more or less there is there's a bit of pressure to get people back on stage and dancers don't like to not go on because it mm. sort of doesn't doesn't I say in quotes doesn't look look good on them I suppose there's still that sort of there's a little bit of a stigma I suppose you don't really mm. want to be the one that goes off injured but what I like about my involvement is it I take it out of their hands so I mm. say to them I said to someone the other day blame it on me I'm the one that's mm. signing you off you want to dance but I'm telling mm. you it's not safe so what's nice about having a, a medical professional there is that they can I can say to the dance captain they can't do this this and this therefore they can't go on so there's no argument really you know mm. I can always um I can always explain it and and that's my job I need to be very clear can they go on or not and if they can't why not and then be able to reason that with the productive uh, the artistic team fantastic sounds like they're lucky to have you but your situation like you say is is different than there's a lot of is there lots of shows that you know of who will not even have someone on site and they'll just make a phone call quickly if one of the dancers oh, yeah. got a problem and, and it's a bit more of a nightmare yeah totally like touring companies often don't have physios or they'll just send people out so if they'll be in scotland and they'll be like oh who, where's there a physio in scotland and they'll send someone to someone they don't even know you know so yeah, yeah, yeah. um or you've got uh, like the, the equivalent of off broadway so off west end stuff so smaller companies and smaller shows definitely do not have the resources that i'm involved in mm. i'm really fortunate to be in the position I am and the dancers I work with are really fortunate to have it um mm. but it's it's still not it wouldn't be for smaller shows it, it just isn't they can't afford it mm. um yeah. Steve's been waiting here um, patiently in 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 the side I can't remember what the name is now in the wings um and he's got a question here um Liz what is the worst trauma dance injury you've dealt with Steve wants blood um yeah <laughs> so there you go let's get that he's been waiting very patiently <clears throat> oh good that's a good question you got a story there yeah, I've got a few. Um, I'm sort of thinking about the worst trauma injury. So uh, <laughs> there's a couple. There's uh, th so because there's partnering work in dance. Oh, actually, sorry. both of these come from partnering work in dance that I'm thinking of. Um, so this the what, first one I'm going to talk about was actually a couple of years ago. Um, but there was there's a bit where the male dancer had to pick the female dancer up and effectively throw her so that she she did a big old leap and land. It was very impressive. Um, but unfortunately, when they came to rehearse it, it was the end of the day. It always is the end of the day because people are tired. This is the whole thing about having cardiorespiratory fitness and endurance, being able to tolerate this stuff. It was the end of the day. The choreographer had said to them, I want you to do it full, full out. So everyone goes right. And everyone's sort of everyone's adrenaline kind of pumps up and everyone kind of goes for it a bit more than they normally do. So what happened was the girl really went for it and the boy really went for it. And he threw her just a bit too high. And when she landed, she sprained both her ankles. And it was a really, really nasty sprain. Um, and although ankle sprains don't sound that um, uh, that terrible, when you do both at the same time and the level that she had sprained them, it was a pretty big deal. So that was one of the nastiest. It swelled very quickly. Um, and it was a, it was a wheelchair situation and all kinds of stuff. That was a few years ago. Uh, but I, one that sticks in my head, uh, mm. particularly. And the other one was another lift situation where a girl got dropped. So say similar kind of thing. Um, and again, it was the same thing. It was the last run of the day. Everyone kind of went for it and she fell on her shoulder and dislocated. So that was pretty bad. Um, she was hypermobile. She'd had a history of patella dislocations, um, as well. I remember, but, um, yeah, that was pretty bad. I'm trying to think of other ones. They're relatively. No, I was thinking good. of the lift. 
I remember I was involved yeah. in a grease production in the north of Ibiza, um, San Miguel, 2006. And uh, my part was to catch the entertainer. I was just a barman. I just got dragged in to do, <laughs> to do the grease jump. I think it was grease lightning where he jumps up and he holds him yeah. and spins him around and stuff. And it all went wrong. And he just landed on top of me and I dropped <laughs> him. And fortunately, he was drunk and there wasn't any visible mess, but um, he couldn't move for a while. But yeah, so I was imagining it was going to be a lift problem. A lift situation, either lift or falling off scenery. That's a big one, too. So mm. actually, actually, the worst traumatic injury, but it was a scenery thing. So a scenery, you know how the stage goes up and down and all sorts. So it actually became quite famous in, in the West End. Again, this was years ago. We're really non-specific about what it was. But a guy got his ankle caught in a bit of the scenery and it came down. And um, there was some pretty permanent damage done on that mm. one. That was pretty nasty too. Um, yeah. So the, it, yeah. it does happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if that's served you steve i'm sure if you need some more gruesome stuff i mean uh this will be happy to email some photos or something yeah but hopefully that'll <laughs> <you enough>. yeah. <laughs> um so let me have a look where are we because it's already here oh, 10 to 9 already um i'm interested one of the things that i love about you and i think i don't know whether i give this too much weight but i wonder whether and you mentioned it earlier the degree you did in psychology mm-hmm plays an influence in how you treat and how you work and the subjective part of it assessing anybody does it kind of come back is there a definite relationship there do you think yeah with my psychology so god it was a long time ago I graduated that when I was 21 so that and oh, here we go I'm tell you how old I am now so that was in the year 2000 so it was a long time ago um but I think more than the actual knowledge that I got from that degree because you, you do forget it I mean god over 20 years or whatever it is you know you do forget it but I suppose the fact that I was always interested in it is probably what I take forward so mm. um like uh when it comes to this the, the biopsychosocial approach and looking at the whole person considering people's mental health and in dance mental health is a really important one lots of dancers struggle with mental health um, lots of performers do. That includes musicians, singers, actors. So the performing arts in general, mental health is a big one. Um, so I've always been interested in it and I'm always very aware of it. And it's something that I take into account with my assessments, assessments treatments, rehab, all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, yeah, just my general interest without doubt probably does. I hope, I hope it complements the work that I do with dancers, but it's something to be really aware of with everybody, obviously, but particularly with performers. And how much of a factor is it, like you mentioned, the biopsychosocial? So obviously, if you've got somebody who is supposed to be working in the evening um, and they've in, they're in pain, let's say we don't want the injuries, how often, given the population you work with, you've already mentioned the kind of fears and maybe the imposter syndromes or the lack of confidence or whatever, or maybe the opposite, maybe they're too confident. How much is the kind of psychosocial part of it when working with dancers a factor you have to take in consideration? Um, well, it can definitely affect how someone res- how someone responds to an injury without question. It does in all people that get injuries, doesn't it? Like, you know, if it affects your ability to work. So let's just take an office worker. If they've got some kind of um, neck issue or back issue or whatever it is. Often that can become very negative and you're starting to look at various different colour flags with those kinds of situations. And it's the same with dancers. So the thing is, it's much easier for them to get an injury that will stop them from working than an office worker. And um, often it can be more severe and it could be career ending, you know. It, um, so uh, I'm going to go off on a tangent. I have to remember what you just asked me. So about mental health. So, um, yes. So you have to, so it definitely affects people's ability to cope with an injury. It affects how they respond to rehab. 
So in my therapy live talk, I was I talked about one particular case. It was a dance student that I used to work with. And I used him because he was such a fantastically motivated, positive example. And um, I said, oh, you know, I know you should probably use the, the more difficult ones as case studies. But he he there was no barrier there at all. And it, actually, I think his mental attitude and his motivation really helped him achieve such a positive outcome which is why I used it as an example but when you get the opposite of that it can be really detrimental and massive massive barriers so you have to start thinking about outward referrals you have to think about using outcome measures to actually assess how much of a problem it's going to be um so you're looking at um emotional well-being um various mental health uh, issues I've, I've written a blog on this rather than me trying to pull everything from my brain now. But I've, I've done a few blogs on my website. But if you wanted to read about that, it's in the Return to Dance section. And part one talks a lot about the subjective and about mental health and emotional and behavioural um, well-being. Um, and part two talks more about the objective part. That's what my Therapy Live talk was about. Um, so if you're interested in it, have a look at the blog rather than me trying to remember it all now. Um, but it is very important. It is in every population, but it definitely is with dancers. It's, and you just need to be aware of it. Quite often... They will push to get on stage, but quite mm. often they'll push not to get on stage or they'll be injured constantly. And that's when you kind of start thinking, oh, why? You know, because when you sort of look at them, they don't seem that bad or they it's a bit inconsistent. There's just something about it that doesn't add up. And you have to start thinking, well, what's the problem here? There's something else going on that probably isn't that they've got back pain. Maybe it's mm. because they don't want to be a performer or maybe it's because they, they want to get out before before they get put out. You know what I mean? So they mm. want to kind of quit quit before the industry quits on them or something like that mm. um uh there's lots of self-esteem issues with dancers definitely i mean of often people get into the performing arts for validation without question mm. um so all of that stuff comes into play and i can handle a lot of that i suppose and having been a dancer i think that helps with the rapport with dealing with that but being aware of it is the first step knowing how to assess it is the next step. That's what my blog talks about a little bit. And then knowing where to refer people on to is the step after that, because there's only so much you can do. I mean, I did a psychology degree, but I'm not a psychologist by mm. any means. Um, uh, uh, what was I going to say? Uh, yeah, so where to refer on to. So you might be thinking about just a counsellor. You might be thinking about just referring them to the GP for general um kind of uh, therapy or you might be thinking about a sports psychologist depending on what the problem is so having those um contacts ready for when you need them is really important fantastic and at the moment in your current role just to before i'm going to bring up a shot of your website because there's a few things there i want to mention it's a great website when you're in your current role are you a, if somebody is injured and they can't perform are you have you got the role of rehabbing them as well yes or yeah yeah okay. so there's, there's a there's a couple of people in various shows, again, really non-specific about it, um, yeah. that are out for a slightly longer period. And um, my role with them, which is fantastic, is that I I screened them. So yeah. I, when I screened all these people, I remember saying to them, look, we're going to get your one, uh, one sorry, single leg hop distance and we're going to mm. do press-ups and we're going to do balance and we're going to do the star excursion balance test. Well, now I've got that information about where those guys were before they got injured. This is where the screening so useful. Yeah. So rather than saying, oh, yeah, they've got a slight scoliosis, who cares? Or oh, they're hypermobile, who cares? Mm. Every, everyone should do strength and conditioning work, including hypermobile dancers. So it doesn't matter. It's literally, it, it, it's so so unimportant. Most dancers are hypermobile, you know. So, um, but I've now got scores for the dancers that are injured on the bigger capacity and will be out for a little bit longer that I can now compare when they when they get back to end stage rehab. I can look at their hop distance, their jump heights, their balance, their um, 
cardiorespiratory mm. capacity. I've got all that information now because we screened for it initially. And I remember I said that to one of the dancers. Um, we've got a girl who's got quite an RC injury, should be out for probably a couple of months. I said to her, you remember all that stuff we did? It was worth it. Now I know what we need to get you back to. You know, that screening that's really worth doing, really worth doing. Because now I'm not guessing and I'm not comparing it to her contralateral side. I know exactly what she was capable of when she came into the show. Ironically, she was one of the strongest dancers I've seen. And it was a traumatic injury that wasn't really her quote unquote fault. So it's really sad. Um, but I've got the information that I need to know where I need good. to get her back to. Yeah, so it's really good. And I think we were mentioning off air because the word screening, there's been quite a lot of blogs about it. And people kind of think with screening, the idea is you're predicting injury, but you don't even call it screening anymore. What, is it, what do you say no. you call it? Um, well, me and another dance cuisine that I often chat to started calling it profiling. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Good word. So it's a slight, slightly different, has a different undertone to it. And the dance mm. is kind of, they don't feel like they're being judged. They feel like they're being helped. Mm. And that's really important to get across because when I, especially when I screen students, um, I'll say to them, look, this is, for, this is for you to help you. It's not for us to judge whether you're going to get into the college or not. It's not like it used to be. So I'm not trying to work out, can you do a high kick and is that good enough to get you into the college? I'm trying to work out where are your weaknesses? What can we help you with? What specific exercises can I give you? In truth, if everyone even does just a basic general strength and conditioning program, everyone will benefit. That's been shown by research at Elmhurst Ballet. So they put mm -hmm. the, I've talked about this in other things, but um, the 11 plus dance is something that's based on the FIFA 11 plus, the footballers. It's been adapted for dancers. They put it into Elmhurst Ballet School. They had a reduction in injuries of around 40%. Mm. And that's everyone doing it. So whether they're hypermobile or they've got, you know, short hamstrings or whatever it is, or a slight scoliosis, by putting that on everybody, so not just the hypermobile dancers being told they've got to do strength and conditioning, everyone mm. does it. And then a huge drop in um, injury rates. And that's by getting their cardiorespiratory fitness up, strength, control, landing techniques, balance. That's basically what that program does. And it, has, it makes a huge difference. And I, I spoke to the guy, so his name is Nico Kolokithas. He's on Twitter, um, just to give him a shout out. But I spoke to him about the fact that I was going to work in the West End again. I said, it's called the 11 plus. Is this still valid for adults? And he said, yeah, it's not been looked into as much, but totally, you can totally do it with adults. So that, that's mm. a big, I often base a lot of the stuff that we do and I will do going forward on the 11 plus dance. Well, there'll be adaptions and there's things that we can do to make things harder or tailor it a bit more to specific shows. But the 11 plus dance is a great starting point. If you look it up on YouTube, they filmed everything. Um, they show you how to progress, how to regress, what to look for for techniques. So that's a really good resource. Fantastic. Sounds really cool. That's good. Well, look, it's nine o'clock now. I just want to bring up because your website's got a load of great stuff on it. I'm going to put this on full screen, but people can still hear you um, even though. So um, for people listening to the podcast, I'm just showing a screenshot of um, Liz Bailey with a Y. Liz Bailey <laughs> still got, still got Steve's comment up about the worst trauma injury. Oh, yeah, that's good. Sorry, Steve. I hope you've uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just saw that. Um, yeah, Liz Bailey uh, with the Y, physio.com. Um, and if you go there and on that web page, there's an awful lot of stuff which you should be looking at, especially if you work with dancers or you dance yourself. But yeah, there's a little link there at the bottom, Return to Dance Performance After Injury Part 1. And if you click on that, um, then there's a blog when you scroll down. And I say it's a blog. It's it's fantastically long, but easy to understand and relevant to not just dancers. That's the thing I love about it. It's talking about specific case histories and people, but it's, it's the way you analyze it and go through it and explain things and look at different factors. So... I would um, definitely recommend that people go to that. Um, 
yeah and when's part two coming because i scrolled down at the end it's oh it i coming know soon. no i know I, part two was what i based my therapy live talk on and i said in the talk i'll have it published in a couple of weeks and i knew i was lying oh, <laughs> it's, yeah. Been, yeah. it's been over a month already but that's because i started my new job and i just got really busy um okay. but i yeah. will publish it I, like it's literally written as a presentation i've just got to put it into a blog form but I think it's got some useful stuff. And that's that's not just for dancers. That's for any top uh, athlete or any elite people that people might be working with in a sporting back, in a facility, uh, background, whatever, um, that crosses over because it gives you all the end stage stuff, how to test them, see if they're ready for full performance. That's subjective and objective. So hopefully there's lots of useful stuff in there. Definitely. It's a really good blog. Um, and um, and yeah. Also, there's lots of stuff you've done. You've done work with Jack Chu. So Therapy Live is worth checking out. People can still listen to that. Yeah, they totally can. I think they need to sort of be a member on it. So uh, yeah. you, you can't listen to it for free. But if you if you I mean, God, the, the, the Choose Health and the MSK reform stuff that Jack Chu does is it's invaluable for anyone who works in the MSK industry. It's just got such top quality evidence-based relevant stuff so if you're going to spend any money on cpd it's you could do far worse um and the amount of talks on there god if i mean the day the therapy that i did there were like 150 speakers or something and it per i think per lecture it's like 20p or something Mm. it's really like nothing and it's got you know leading leading experts can't believe that i was involved in it (laughs) (laughs) i love hearing that well yeah, it's almost like you're a real physio now. So, um, it is. <laughs> yeah, that's worth checking out. And also, you've got, uh, you did, uh, the, um, what's it called? Chewing It Over as well, which is a nice episode. You did the original Physio Matters podcast with Jack, wasn't it? Interviewing, which is worth listening yeah. to. So, there's a lot of information out there from you. Um, and then you worked with Evie recently, didn't you? And did the, with Bill, you did a podcast episode. Yes, uh, there's a lot, that, isn't there? There's quite a lot. Yeah, I know. I think we've, we've been busy. Some of the stuff, <laughs> I've been really busy. Some of the stuff we've talked about today comes up in those other things, but we ha- we didn't talk much about the screening, so hopefully that's new. But yeah, I mean, if you want to, God, it's a lot of lot of me talking, isn't it? But you know, no, it's great. Stop putting yourself down. Do you sure. understand why Jack was getting so angry with you now? Will you oh, please? No. On the worst. No, it's all really no, hopefully stuff. it's uh, hopefully it's useful and. Um, yeah, there's a lot to listen to. So if you're interested in working with dancers, I also did a talk for the Manchester uh, Physio Physio Society for students. And it was kind of just it's on YouTube. Um, so you Google me, Dance Physio Manchester University, you'll find it. It's like a talk about how to get into dance physio. Um, and some of the stuff we've talked about today is on there, like a little bit about screening, but maybe not so much detail uh, in common injuries, those kinds of things. And there's talk, isn't there, on the grapevine of a regular thing with you and Bill, maybe podcast wise? Yeah. Yeah, because this is this That'd has be been great. a long time coming. So me, me and Bill Taylor, the consultant physio for the Scottish Ballet, mm. had been talking about doing a podcast, and um, it's going to be called God. What was it going to be called? I've forgotten the name. This is how long it's been. What were we going to call it? Oh, to the points. So we're going to call oh, it right. to, to the points, spelt like the dance shoe. To the yeah. points, physiotherapy or something, and we're going to try and make it patient facing. So it will be specifically for dancers. So common injuries how to manage them you know first like when you're first injured the best steps to take what you should and shouldn't do what you should do for strength training anything that could be useful for dancers the kind of thing that I wish I had listened to when I was a performing when I was a performing artist when I was a dancer yeah so just it'll be uh I think physios will probably get a lot from it and sports therapists as well but it'll be more specifically for dancers because there's not that much out there just for dancers in that kind of way in a clinical way 
Fantastic. Well, I hope that comes to light. That'd be, it will. That'd be we're just, yeah. We're just both so busy and we keep cancelling. We're like, let's do it this weekend. And then one of us cancels. So we'll, we'll, we'll do it. I hope so. Um, and anything else lined up? I mean, I know you've got loads of stuff going on. You've had a few, um, well, Cinderella, for example, has been closed for a while, but um, hopefully that will all be up and running again soon. And you're just busy yeah. for the whole of summer, are you? Crazy busy. Well, so yeah. like I say, the, the company that I got this new job with, I've mm-hmm. always known about. I used to work with a different company. So in the West End, there's kind of big companies that often do the shows. I've worked now for two of the bigger companies. Um, this particular company just seems to have every show going at the moment. So we are... Um, we're really, really busy, partly because we're coming out of the COVID situation, partly because we're going into the rehearsal situation for every show, like I said before. So it looks like I'm going to be really well, so long as the shows stay open to some capacity, this is the thing. Um, mm. I'm assuming they will. Let's just hope we can get through it. But yeah, so more podcasts. I'm also going to be doing some, I'm still teaching dance, believe it or not. So, <laughs> as well. Yeah. So I'm still Incredible. teaching Argentine tango a little bit of showgirl stuff off the back of my Moulin Rouge stuff. So I still do dance teaching as well. So lots of stuff. Fantastic. Um, Mel Coleman-Jones, thank you for your comments. Mel has just said, found this live really interesting as my daughter's a dancer and a gymnast. Mm. There's so much information I think Liz is showing that, um, again, most dancers aren't getting. Um, So, I mean, it's across the healthcare really, isn't it? There's a lot of stuff which the mm. average person and reaching and, and getting so hopefully that has mail and if you like i say if you need more information then check out Liz's website um david paul to a said and true straight to the point additional style great job thanks so thanks david <laughs> i'm glad we got your seal of approval even got a little thank you sign there thanks, that's fantastic thanks paul thanks paul <laughs> i'm honored um, that he would listen listen that's great there you go um right so thanks Liz. really kind thank you for coming back for part two all i can think of now is we're gonna have to do a part three so we'll give it kind of five months or something uh, but like i say it sounds like i mean it's really interesting what you're doing especially with the idea to research i've got for example emma brockwell on my mind Do you know emma yes emma brockwell? yeah so she her. kind of yeah. she did the same thing with the there was nothing on running um uh return to running for yeah. uh, post-pregnancy post, yeah post-pregnancy. she got involved with tom and then bam out come this paper which just took off it was just yeah. it was the gap there which wasn't around so it sounds yeah. like you've stumbled upon a similar thing yeah um so it'd be really exciting where that takes you and also like you say this um getting to work with athletes um we didn't get to talk about dancers being athletes oh, i have to have a part three but yeah, yeah good well, luck with that sounds really good um yeah you're definitely setting the scene aren't you you are the name now have you got used to well, that now no <laughs> you kidding no ridiculous um no but it, i definitely get more emails from people with with questions about dancers for sure <laughs> so I, it must be getting out there a little bit but i'm happy to do it I, i'm you know i uh I love social media. I've always used Twitter as a form of CPD. I think it's just absolutely brilliant. You can stick something on Twitter and get a diagnosis from all the top minds in the country. I mean, it's just fantastic. So I'm always on Twitter, probably to my detriment. But I I think it's very, very useful to stay up to date with current topics. And um, so the fact that I'm kind of in that little world and I've got I'm friends now with people that I used to listen to podcasts Mm -hmm. for, which is, I, you know, I'm very, uh, very grateful and um it's that's important to me so it's it's nice to do all this stuff and hopefully it's helpful for people fantastic um apologies to 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 who was it it's becky wasn't it we didn't get onto the subject of eating disorders that often comes up doesn't it with dancers oh. but like i say we'll do a part three did you talk about eating disorders you did that with jack didn't you did that with come jack, up and, yeah. yeah just just very quickly but yes there's no doubt a dance is an aesthetic art form which 
brings with it certain levels of aesthetic requirements tends to be a bigger problem in ballet than in musical theatre in my experience I believe Um, but definitely something that's on your radar with dancers without question and you should definitely know about how to screen for it um, about issues with uh, red s bone health all of those kinds of things cool okay then right i'm gonna let you go liz because it's 909 thank you so much that flew by um if people want to contact you then i mean you're on twitter which is liz bailey physio is that you on twitter liz bailey physio that's it follow me i'm, I'm nearly at 2000 <laughs> followers now come on guys Excited. that's fantastic and uh if they want to contact you is that the best place to contact you or is it better through the website either you can either, either. send me an email through the website or twitter's always good yeah fantastic there we go right thanks liz um don't go away i'm going to say goodbye to everyone now but i'll say thanks to you personally in a second uh people next week on tuesday i'm on holiday i'm in where am i bodium somewhere called bodium i think along the south coast camping um which is hilarious because when you look at the weather tomorrow's boiling the next day's boiling the next day's boiling come monday when matt goes camping lightning (laughs) shower storms hail so i'm going to be in a tent with my two beloved children and wife listening to the rain on the canvas which will be amazing for two days we're looking forward to it um but yeah but mike grice will be here standing in as ever as super host with um gary as well founder of the sta gary benson and it'll be an opportunity it's a pure question and answer and industry questions people so we've already put a post few posts out there Anything you want to be covered next Tuesday uh, to do with um, soft tissue therapy, sports therapy, sports massage therapy, um, at any level, um, industry related, then send them to um, Gary at the STA.co.uk or send it to me, Matt at the STA.co.uk. Um, and we'll make sure that goes onto the list for Mike um, and Gary and hopefully a few of the reps um, who will come on cam as well to go through and answer. So that's next Tuesday at the same time. But on behalf of myself and the wonderful Liz Bailey with Y, um, thank you very much for joining us. And, um, and, and I'll see you in two weeks, but hopefully um, have a great time with Mike next week. Liz, thanks again. See you all thank soon. Thank you, everyone. Bye. You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast. Let's talk about it.